Welcome to episode 129 of Junk Filter. My name is Jesse Hawken, and my returning guest is Maggie Sirota. She's a writer and self-appointed trash scholar who also has a great substack too. Maggie, so glad to have you back on the show. Toxic masculinity. <laughs> you know I love it. You know I love to talk about it. You know, <laughs> it's like whenever we have to discuss the the artistic work of monstrous guys. Yeah, yeah. I have. To, I, I. I'm always thinking about Maggie. <laughs> <laughs> so for for those that don't know, I was um, my first appearance on the show. We were discussing the Steven Seagal Magnus Opus uh, Out for Justice. Well, our investigation into the careers of horrible guys continues mm-hmm. tonight. Our subject for today is the epic 2013 documentary for Showtime, History of the Eagles, directed by Allison Elwood, a three-and-a-half-hour documentary about the L.A. country rock band, a band that may have given us, by accident, punk rock. <laughs> <laughs> All these bands are like, okay, we have to stop the Eagles. Let's start a punk. Well, I, I just found like, <laughs> like if you can only hear take it easy so many times. Yeah. Like, and especially coming from people who have no business telling anyone to take anything easy. <laughs> like that'll make you aggro. That'll, that'll get the hackles up. <laughs> it's true. A band, a band that wrote songs like take it easy and peaceful, easy feeling who broke up on stage in 1980 after they got in a huge fight. Yeah. (laughs) When they were threatening to kill each other. (laughs) Which this documentary has the evidence of and so much more. This is one of the funniest documentaries I've ever seen. And I'm delighted to dig into this one with you, Maggie. I think this is a better documentary for people that don't like the band than people who are fans of the band. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. It's, it, it, it's the sweet spot because I think people who love the Eagles would love this documentary, but people who hate the Eagles would also love this documentary. I've watched this documentary twice, the four-hour thing. It's four hours. I watched it twice. I don't like the Eagles. <laughs> I don't like Don Henley. I like Joe Walsh. I like Glenn Johns. I wish he was around for the entire documentary. <laughs> you know, contrast how Glenn Johns is in the Beatles Get Back documentary with how he is in this documentary. <laughs> So happy to be with the lads in <laughs> in uh, Get Back, but in this movie, he was basically uh, politely accepted to produce their first record. And it took him a couple tries. It it wasn't until they harmonized in front of him, yeah, where he was like, "Oh, okay, I see something, I get it." But like, like it two other times he saw them, they did nothing for him. And I feel like you should like trust your instinct, Lynn Johns. <laughs> you work with real bands. In Glenn Fry's Talking Heads, where he's like talking directly to the camera and they just give him the kind of glamorous shadow to minimize his nose. Like they gave him such incredible lighting to really minimize all his his prominent features. <laughs> but like when you see those, like he just goes from zero to angry, just like recreating a conversation. You're like, what are you like? When you're actually angry, and what are you like when you're actually angry on cocaine? Yeah, I mean that's the uh, the one thing about this film is the, these guys are years away from their their cokey days mm-hmm. in the '70s and '80s, but they're also there's a sort of dry drunk vibe yeah. to this film. Like they they look like they're um, they would love to still be doing this stuff, but they just can't. Yeah, and it drives, <laughs> and it drives them mad. <laughs> Thank you.
The Eagles, or as the band would prefer to be called, Eagles, are a maddening band because they are such arrogant pricks. Yeah. And yet, they've written songs that those who love or hate them know inside and out. Like, you know, I don't like the Eagles very much, but I know all their music for some strange reason. It's because of how ubiquitous it is on the radio. The band broke up right when the classic rock radio genre took off. So the Eagles music never stopped playing. Right. Which is interesting. And that's a point of contention I have with this, um, with why um, Glenn Fry and, um, and Don Henley were able to wrestle away that significant chunk away from the rest of the band in the latter part where he was talking about um, like how he and Don were the only ones keeping the Eagles name out there. Like after they already admitted that like classic rock radio was keeping like had kept the Eagles alive. Don Felder, the mm-hmm. notorious who we'll be speaking about throughout this show, uh, he co-wrote Hotel California, but you wouldn't know it from the way that Fry and Henley talk about that song. Oh, they diminish his accomplishments and his contributions at every turn. This film is the official story of the Eagles, made by their producer Irving Azoff. It was supposed to coincide with the 40th anniversary of the Eagles' first album. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was supposed to be this uh, this film about how wonderful they are and how important they are. But credit to the filmmaker, perhaps. I don't really want to credit the band too much mm-hmm. for it. They come across kind of as assholes, even in this oh, official yeah. version. Oh, no. Don Henley and, and Glenn Fry. this is just four hours of them sucking their own dicks. <laughs> <laughs> and they don't really have a lot of self-awareness about that. And it's, but it, and it's like just like incredible to watch (laughs) they're sort of like the ultimate boomer band american Mm -hmm. boomer band yes and and that cuts both ways because they were the band that sort of epitomized the me decade in the Mm -hmm. 70s and you know they were so full of themselves just like all their you know the Mm -hmm. the world that they lived in and they sold out in later times in the Mm -hmm. 90s they became a very corporate band yeah when they came back i uh, the the writer mark elliott wrote a very um mean unauthorized biography of the Eagles in the oh, late nineties. Yeah. And, and he said in the book that it was when the Eagles reunited in the mid nineties, he said it was like they put on a new production of Beatlemania, but got the original Beatles to be in it. <laughs> oh my gosh. Those, uh, those press conferences were painful during the, and it looked like that, that tour could have been sponsored by Dockers. Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? Like everyone just looked like a dad. <laughs> Yeah. And they were dads, but I mean, they really, I don't really know that they looked that much like rock stars to begin with. I was wondering something beca- about something because um, Don Henley doesn't have curly hair. Like he has curly hair in the beginning and I was wondering if it was a perm. Mm-hmm. And then I just started wondering, I wonder if he permed his hair so it would be like this halo so he can be seen, like his head can be bigger behind the drum set. Yeah, maybe. Because it kind of cuts off that ability to kind of be the front man having the to be behind the drums. Yeah, because he had this ridiculous uh, perm mm-hmm. in, at, in their heyday. And then in the 80s, he became all sleek. And so did Glenn Fry. Like, they had those sort of 80s haircuts. Yeah. And and then uh, starting around 1994, Henley just switched over into being a sort of Texas dad and yeah. wearing flannel. And the most objectionable flannel shirt. Yeah. It's only a matter of time. Like, once the flannel shows up, like, the goatee is just right around the corner. Maggie, here's my first question to you. What is your relationship to the Eagles? Do you like any of their music or their solo careers? Would you consider yourself a Henley head or a Fry guy? <laughs> I think I have a pet. I mean, growing up, they were never a band I ever connected with. 
in any way. It's just something I kind of happened upon their music or their music happened to me. Like, you know, like it's in the car, or, like, you know, like it's, I always just kind of like thought of it as like music that the ladies at the reception desk at my orthodontist listen to. Like, like it was waiting room music, like, you know, yeah. blue, or like all the, the theater kids, the uncool theater kids would have like a, you know, like a reunion t-shirt the next day because they would go to like Billy Joel and all those like <laughs> dorky. And I'm like, guys, we're teenagers. Like, don't you want to? <laughs> yeah. The, the Eagles for me was the music in the backseat of the car when I was a little kid. Okay. And, and when you're a little kid, you pretty much like everything. So when I was very young, I liked the Eagles. I mm-hmm. enjoyed their music. And then in my teenage years, I revolted against them, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, which is an important development in, in your own taste is to yeah. renounce things you used to like. Oh, yeah. I've been through it. Let's see. Um, I renounced you too, and I got into punk rock. Um, I renounced Nine Inch Nails when I got into hardcore. Um, I think I renounced other stuff when I started going to raves. Yeah, it's... (laughs) It's important to like something and then deny you ever liked it. Yeah, and disavow it. (laughs) But with some music, you you, uh, turn away from it and then you come back to it later. Whereas for the Eagles, you know, I can name the songs that I like by the band on one hand. Yeah. I, yeah. Even though I know their music very well, I don't mm-hmm. really like it. When I was listening to them again for this episode, I was like, you know, that song, I Can't Tell You Why, is a pretty nice song. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, that, I, was, like that one was good. Yeah. New York Minute has a certain charm, but I think mm-hmm. I, some of these songs just got embedded in me, like over just from watching a documentary because they pop up. Take It to the Limit was stuck in my head for a little bit, but I don't think it's just because I liked it. It's just kind of like, it's just kind of intrusive. I don't know. There's something about the way that song's written that will get stuck and it's not necessarily an indication of enjoyment. Uh, Glenn Fry is a Detroit kid mm-hmm. and um, one of the things you learn in this documentary was that he was a big fan of Motown and R and B when he was young. And I think the Eagle songs that I like the most are the ones that have a sort of seventies R and B sound. Like yeah. uh, I read that uh, he based uh, one of these nights was influenced by the spinners and that makes total sense. Yeah. And it actually made me like the song more. Yeah, that's a pretty, yeah, that's a song. If that comes on the radio, I'm like, that can stay. Yeah. I might even go, one of these nights, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. that one can stay. <laughs> yeah, the harmonies are beautiful and stuff. Yeah. And, and I can't tell you why sounds like an Al Green song. Mm-hmm. And, you know, actually the long run could have also been done by Al Green. Mm-hmm. So those songs don't bother me as much because they remind me of better music that I mm-hmm. could be listening to. I can imagine uh, uh, the, the spinners doing a version of one of these nights. It's too bad they didn't. Mm. But generally, I could you could take 
all of their music and put it in the garbage can. Yeah. Yeah. Ever, I mean, I think I, what I would describe it just as aggressively boring. Yeah. Like, like when that one woman, you see her naked dancing for the Eagles. Like yeah. I was just disappointed in her, not for being naked in public, just like really this band, like this is the one you, <laughs> you risk it all for. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm going to read to you a very, very funny put down mm-hmm. of the band by Robert Christgau. Please. Um, I love this, how it starts. This is a paragraph from Mm -hmm. a review of their first album. He said, another thing that interests me about the Eagles is that I hate them. (laughs) Hate is the kind of uptight word that automatically excludes one from polite post-hippie circles, a good reason to use it. But it is also meant to convey an anguish that is very intense, yet difficult to pinpoint Do I hate music that has been giving me pleasure all weekend made by four human beings I've never met? Yeah, I think so. (laughs) (laughs) There's something kind of offensive about a band saying now we're ready to rock after they add their third guitarist. Yeah. (laughs) When so many other bands do so much more with so much less. Yeah. They thought of themselves as a rock band, like a hard rock band. Yeah. But but uh, when they went to London, they really expected to, that Glyn Johns would welcome them as rock stars. But he actually preferred their country music. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He wasn't very interested in what his, they were doing. His talking heads are my favorite part. I loved him. Yeah. <laughs> Even when he was talking about things he liked about them, it didn't really sound like compliments. Yeah. They went back to work with him a couple of albums into their career they did on the border. Oh, really? They, they went back to London to record with him, and they only finished two songs because Glyn Johns was getting so fed up with them. And he at one point just said to them, you're not a rock and roll band. The Who is a rock and roll band. Where's the lie? <laughs> yeah. Where is it? I want to get into the the reasons why people don't like the Eagles. Mm -hmm. Some people unquestionably love them. Some definitely hate them. Mm -hmm. We all know their music. And the part of the appeal for me of the band is that they're fun to hate. Yeah, they are fun to hate. (laughs) (laughs) Like they're, yeah. I mean, they, to me, they epitomize the worst excesses of baby boomers. Mm -hmm. They are, at once wallowing in decadence and criticizing it. Mm-hmm. There's a real nastiness to the way that they portray women. Yes. Lion eyes. That was that one. Yeah. I made a note to talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> like the, the contempt in, in Henley's voice. Oh my Don Henley. Like the minute he like revealed that he was an English major, like so much like clicked <laughs> into place. Yeah. His big uh, thing that he's been doing for most of his career is he's an, he thinks of himself as an environmentalist, and he's mm-hmm. trying to protect Walden Woods, which is like where Henry David Thoreau wrote his poems, and we have to preserve this beautiful land that uh, where all this great American literature was written. And it's just like, it's, that's what you're more interested in, is your own taste being uh, yeah. protected. It's not, it doesn't sound like the environment is your main concern. It's like the fellow poets like... Henry David Thoreau and me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> the parts where he talks about like how like we're just sitting around and like in solitude reading Thoreau, like it was like a bomb for his soul. Like I could just, Oh, like I'm glad they let him do this stuff. And like, just yeah. like, I'm glad like they let him like just put his clown makeup on, like, you know, like, <laughs> but sometimes it's just like just secondhand embarrassment. I, I mean, against my better nature, I just want to be like the altruistic part of me is like, 
bro. <laughs> Before we get into the film itself, because I do want to uh, go through some of the great moments in this sure. documentary, is that um, I think the one thing you can say about the band and their and their manager is that they uh, they did allow some of the unpleasant stuff to mm-hmm. get included in this film. Yeah. Maybe because it's unavoidable, like you mm-hmm. have to do it, warts and all. But, you know, there are some very assaholic moments in mm-hmm. this film that are allowed to be in the movie, which I think is good. Yeah. Good for Glenn Fry, at least. Uh, <laughs> Elwood approached Glenn Fry to let him know that they had the audio footage of the onstage fight between him and Don Felder that broke up the band mm. in 1980 because their producer had the audio of it. And they gave her permission to use it in the movie. They said, go for it. Mm. And I think I think that's the secret sauce that makes this movie so good and watchable is that there are moments of candor in mm-hmm. the band where you're surprised that this stuff actually got into the movie. Mm-hmm. And even when they're in like tight lip damage control mode, like mm-hmm. Henley often is like when they're talking about their drug use, like mm-hmm. Fry's like, oh, yeah, we were doing drugs all the time. And Henley was like, in those days, people did a lot of substances. And I'm not going to say we didn't do it like, you know, mm-hmm. he's <laughs> like. By leading that into the movie, it shows that Henley is Mr. Damage Control and Fry's Mr. Uh, he's like a jock. In yeah. Oh, no. To, Fry's uh, the hatch. Seems like he's the hatchet man. And yeah. like Henley's the, the passive aggressive one. Mm-hmm. This is a quote from Elwood. She said, Glenn was the leader of the band in getting stuff done. He was the doer. He understood that when we agreed to do the film that it had to be honest, that we weren't making a fluff piece. He said he didn't want a fluff piece. And his willingness to be completely honest and warts and all made a huge difference in the film and set a precedent for the others. Joe Walsh, after seeing a first cut of the movie, asked to be re-interviewed because he realized how open Glenn was being. And I think Walsh is the MVP of this documentary. Yeah, I feel like if this was actually a warts and all documentary, which is absolutely is not, it would have talked about what happened at Don Henley's house in 1980 with the underage girl. Yeah. We're getting ahead of ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so so let's talk about uh, how this film begins. It, they're, they're performing a concert at the height of their career when they were touring Hotel California. And mm-hmm. they have this really gross scene where Henley and Fry are having a beer in the limo after leaving the show. And Henley's talking about how the Eagles are at the top of the mountain. Mm-hmm. Bands don't, and that bands last longer now than they used to, which is like a preview of the future that this band could go on forever. And mm-hmm. then Henley pauses and then he just says, shit, don't float. Oh yeah. <laughs> it's like, like yeah, have the... you have you ever seen shit? Because it does. Yeah. <laughs> maybe maybe his doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> he needs to get more fiber in his diet. Yeah. And uh, Fry says, 90% of the time being in the Eagles was a fucking blast. <laughs> it's like, uh yeah. I Yeah, for you. Like, <laughs> for you. For you. <laughs> Ask some of the other eagles how, yeah. what those ratios were. <laughs> Except for the times that uh, the band wanted equal pay. Yeah. Except for the times like Don Felder just went in one song on an album. Just throw, one, just wanted to throw a bone. Yeah. Just wanted to sing a song. <laughs> so Henley and Fry, um, all of these guys came from different parts of the United States. And they all found themselves in L.A., in the um, Laurel Canyon music scene of the late sixties or early seventies. Mm-hmm. And they were playing in on, you know, at, in the sunset strip and at the Troubadour, not getting anywhere really. And yeah. then they wound up becoming uh, the backup musicians for Linda Ronstadt. 
Yeah, she, I mean, not only did she kind of launch their career, like, she even, like, saved one of their, like, songs after it flopped, after they just, like, cut and run from her band and did her own thing. Their own thing. Linda Rotten stands the same. <laughs> she wound up giving them the band, in fact, mm-hmm. because um, Bernie Ledden and Randy Meisner were mm. also in this group that was touring with Ronstad. Poco. And fr- well, yeah, and then there was Poco, but but mm-hmm. they put a band together to tour with Linda Ronstadt, and and those that's when Fry and Henley, who were sort of put up together in a hotel room, started writing songs together and decided that they really liked being in a band together. And so they split, and Linda Ronstadt, to uh, her credit, was cool about it. Like, she yeah. didn't get mad at them at all. She just, suddenly now she has to go and put a band together again. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> she didn't begrudge them. I think she was dating J.D. Souther oh, at okay. the time, who was okay. Glenn Fry's roommate. I love how I love how that guy just got the most extreme close-up of anyone. Yeah. Like, it is just, like, right. <laughs> like it's, yeah. You see his eyes and the bridge of his nose. <laughs> I know. All of his uh, interview scenes are, like, an extreme close-up. And, it, and, and also a lot of... Um, a lot of Henley's interviews are a little too close to his face. Okay. And can we talk about the fact that Henley, like when he's really pleased with a metaphor, he like when like the metaphor at the end with the rusty, uh, you know, like the rusty tractor, like when he finds a turn of phrase, like he just like, he does these dramatic like head movements, like this kind of like head choreography where he thinks he's like, he makes it look like he's really dropping a bomb of knowledge on you. And he, it's just like platitudes or whatever. And there's this extended kind of pose where he's really pleased with himself. And it's so hard to watch. Like this guy has no self-awareness. <laughs> he, he's, he reminded me a little bit of uh, David Brent when David Brent is dropping knowledge and then, Oh uh, yeah. But then he, but Brent always has the telltale sort of looking around to see whether or not anybody's impressed. Mm-hmm. Whereas Henley just stares right into the camera because he's so self-confident. Oh yeah. He's, he's like, he's like, I killed this. I nailed it. Yeah. Henley, you did it again. Yeah. <laughs> I know. So I want to talk about one of the nicest parts of this film, which is that really um, interesting little scene about how you get work done as a songwriter. Oh, with Jackson Brown. Yeah. yeah. That's a really good part. That's one of yeah. the more sympathetic moments of Glenn Fry. Yeah. Um, to save money, because Jackson Brown lived in this uh, crappy apartment, and when Fry and J.D. Souther moved in, he decided to take the basement apartment, which was, like, unfurnished. You it, Like, I'm sure Jackson Brown was pretty annoying. Like, the, the songwriter downstairs in his basement apartment with a piano and maybe no bathroom. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, but Fry talked about how much he learned about songwriting from listening to Jackson Brown developing a song and just playing the song over and over again. And Fry realized that that's how you do it. You, you work plugging you... away. <laughs> yeah, I know you sit down and work. Wow. That was, like, what do you say? It? It's like a revelation, but like the, the tea kettle adds like a poetic, nice little poetic flourish to the story. And you just kind of, you just kind of like get the nice visual of this tiny man getting up for his piano, like do, 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 walking three feet, pouring his tea. Like, Jackson Brown's um, interviews are quite charming. Mm-hmm. The part that was really embarrassing, I forget if it was Henley or Fry who said a hundred years ago they would be gunslingers. Yes. And then they went and did that, like, that Orson Mills. Photo shoot. Like, yeah, that, that Orson Mills ass photo shoot like, <laughs> where they're yeah. all cowboys and they look like dorks. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> That's that was their second album, Desperado, which was a uh, failure in comparison. I think their first two records didn't sell very well. They had legs though. Yeah. And now all of their albums are best selling records. But at the time, um, the Eagles were an early signing of um, David Geffen when he started uh, Asylum Records. So so they basically through braggadocio talked their way into a record contract with Geffen, mm. who was very powerful at the time and asylum records was was literally supposed to be an asylum from the music biz and stuff so you know the eagles were probably one of the lightweights <laughs> from yeah. a, a, from the label like compared to Joni Mitchell mm-hmm. so their first album had um take it easy which was co-written by Jackson Brown and peaceful easy feeling and one of the first uh of their toxic male songs witchy woman written by <laughs> Don Henley you know these women was he was that about um Stevie Nicks? Because he did dates he did hook up with Stevie Nicks. That was later. This uh, okay. is like nineteen seventy-two. Okay. Maggie, if you ever go to Winslow, Arizona, you can go to the corner uh where they've reenacted uh the lyrics of Take It Easy. There's a tourist attraction there now. That like every time like Glenn Fry would like sing the lyric load and like look into a woman's eyes, like maybe so yeah. uncomfortable. Like I don't know. <laughs> oh, like how many times did we have to hear that song yeah. through the course of this damn yeah. documentary? Like you have Hotel California and I got to hear Take It Easy. That's true. This is a, it's a three hour and change documentary, but they keep playing Take It Easy like five times. Yeah. It's like, you would think it's their only song by the yeah. way. <laughs> but the really painful uh, part from their early days was that anecdote about uh, the photographer Gary Burden taking them yes. to, to the desert to do peyote. Mm-hmm. They went out to Joshua Tree and to photograph the album cover. I can't think of a worse fate than tripping my balls off with Don Henley in the desert. Oh, God. Yes, Don, you're brilliant. You're Oh, that's an amazing turn of phrase. Oh, amazing. Yeah, you should you should write a song. Yeah, yeah. You just have to tell Don Henley how smart he is. Like, the whole time. Okay, the part where um, Glenn Fry is talking about where the name, the Eagles, the band comes from, how much of that story do you think is actually true? I think it's all bullshit. Okay. (laughs) Well, you know, it has that sort of, like, I've always said that there's nothing more boring than somebody else's acid trip. Yeah. Like, when when you're hearing about, like, the the big revelations that Glenn Fry had out in the desert, Mm -hmm. it reminded me of those really painful parts from Oliver Stone's The Doors, where they Mm -hmm. all go to the desert. Oh, ride the and snake. see a mystical shaman and stuff like that. So condescending. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yep. So, so anyway, so the Eagles were really into country music and rock, mm-hmm. and they wanted to sort of fuse the two genres, and they had a great country music player in Bernie Ledden. Mm-hmm. Very he was good cool. banjo he player. cool. Yeah. Well, he was the first to split, so he was yeah. automatically the smartest guy in the band. And he had like a very like kind of low key career. Like he kept working, but it's like mm-hmm. he was on people's records, but he just kind of just made the music he liked and mm-hmm. kind of ambled on through life. Well, it's funny how in the in the documentary he has this sort of frizzy hair and yeah. he's sort of like the granola kind mm-hmm. of look. And now the modern day Bernie Ledden kind of looks like a bouncer at a at a yeah. club. <laughs> It's like a bullet head, you know, like he's like a, looks like a um, MMA champion or something. (laughs) Yeah, that was, that was a pretty incredible contrast. He looks like he could could beat up all the rest of the Eagles. He should. (laughs) Um, They they don't get into this in the documentary, but um, after uh, History of the Eagles was released and the Eagles went back out on tour again and Bernie rejoined the band to take over from Don Felder. What? (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, he returned to the to the team. That's I didn't know that. Like I, it was interesting hearing him talk about like not being able to like watch the band after he left because they were just so like contrary to what he wanted to do creatively. Because mm-hmm. he was in the Flying Burrito Brothers. Oh, yeah. by the way, Graham Parsons hated them. <laughs> Graham Parsons hated the Eagles. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, so I in the in their scene, I think everybody sort of thought of them as sort of lightweights. Yeah, like the artists that they would like, you know. So obviously, the Eagles are were mm-hmm. huge fans of the Flying Burrito Brothers, but and they were huge fans of Steely Dan too later on. But those bands didn't really give a shit about the Eagles. Yeah, Steely Dan also fired Don Henley from the recording sessions for Asia because he was going to sing Peg, the Michael uh-huh. McDonald part, mm-hmm. but he sucked and they fired him. And brought in McDonald. You think Don Henley has the the greatest voice you've ever heard by the way he's talked about in the, um, yeah. and it's like, yeah, he's kind of just a lightweight. Like, yeah, Michael McDonald just brings the heat. Yeah. <laughs> the second Eagles album was Desperado, which was their concept album. They're already doing concept albums at album number two. And they were so proud of that photo on the back, the symbolism. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> The back cover shows all of the Eagles dead in an old timey photo, like the way that, you know, wrestlers would get shot and they'd take the photo of all the dead, uh, you know, cowboys to send a message to all you, uh, you know, tough guys out there, all you outlaws. And they had Glenn Johns and, and all of the Eagles agents and managers standing over them dressed up as sheriffs. Why Glenn? <laughs> I don't know. He flew. Maybe he wanted to see them all dead. Maybe he was. Okay, uh, that, yeah, I'd fly across for that. <laughs> So, but there's painful footage in this documentary of the Eagles all dressed up as outlaws, like they're at uh, Westworld or something. Yeah, it's they're silly. <laughs> Probably all on drugs again, too. <laughs> but they, but it kind of looks like you know those um, photo booths where you can have your photo taken in the old west. You know, yeah, yeah, it's like, like like at a mall. They, they seem like little kids uh, dressed yeah. up as cowboys. But uh, anyway, they were really into the country music, and and this was of less appeal to uh, general audiences. I, the song "Desperado," I think, is their second or third most played song, though. Their version or um, Linda's oh, version? I think it gets covered a lot too. So mm-hmm. then maybe we're counting uh, plays, okay. uh, like versions as well. But uh, had, did you ever hear the Langley School's Music Project version of "Desperado"? No, it's this weird album by this Canadian. Um, public school teacher had a children's choir at his public school in Mm -hmm. bc and they did all these weird covers of 70s songs Mm -hmm. but uh, there's a really scary version of desperado sung by like a seven-year-old girl that sort of sounds like the ghost (laughs) of jean benet ramsey (laughs) singing desperado oh my lord i'll send it to you after the recording So, yeah, so then they recorded On the Border and Glenn Johns uh, sent them packing after two songs. Uh, They switched producers and they went with Joe Walsh's producer, who was Bill Zimzik. And when Simsic called Glenn Johns to get his blessing, (laughs) Johns' response was, better you than me, mate. (laughs) 
because you can tell in Glenn's interview, like he didn't like remember saying that, but he's yeah. like, yeah, no, that tracks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah. true. That's yeah. true. Yeah. He backs up the story. Like he's not been, he's not thought about the Eagles since 1975, probably. Yeah. Yeah. He's gone out of his way to not think about the Eagles. <laughs> So this was around the time that Don Felder entered the picture because they, again, a rock band that decided they needed a third guitarist. With a double neck guitar, like not even just another guitar. It's like, you, oh, we need to double one to really rock out now. Yeah. <laughs> and this is where Don Henley's perm became objectionable to me. Because mm-hmm. it, it got so huge. Yeah. Like past yeah. Garfunkel levels. Yeah, that and it's like I really hate how attracted I am to young Don Henley because he is a terrible, <laughs> terrible person. But mm-hmm. it totally tracks. Like, yeah, I'm yeah. like, well, you know, my big beef with Don Henley is he has no lips. I generally don't yeah. trust any man who doesn't have lips. And a, the, the, and like a lipless man when he's angry, like yeah. when he ta- he starts saying Mister Felder and his lips just disappear. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So, okay. Now, uh, here's an, here is another really gross part of the film when they're bragging about their debauchery period. Mm, yeah. When they were touring and they were playing a lot, they did two encores as a band, but then they referred to their after party as the third encore. And then you just cut the footage of them like in a hotel room and just people kind of sitting around, and you're like, "Wow, yeah, this is the third. <laughs> Ooh, really off the chain here." <laughs> but you do get some footage. You get do get some footage of Don Henley actually asking a girl how old she is. Yeah, <laughs> which I thought was kind of like, oh, interesting. You put this in here. Yeah. Anyway, so what, how it would work is they their crew handed out buttons to girls at the show who mm. were cute, and 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 I think uh, they gave them the order. They said no psychos or no mm-hmm. crazy people or something. But yeah. yeah. Anyway, so they were like picking out cute girls to come party with the band at the hotel afterwards they're all in line outside the hotel room it's really gross and then another charming moment was they also referred to the after party as spread eagle oh. yeah th- oh, none of this acquits them well <laughs> no it, again this documentary was made just about the last possible moment that you could make a film like this yeah yeah <laughs> like 2013 like me too was about three years after that yeah so the so they don't shy away from it. They they but you're aware that the, they participated in all of this debauchery. They were really thrilled about it. But they don't. They seem like they have no idea how really sketchy and borderline some of the stuff they show is. You know what I mean? And it's just like it's pretty clear that they think they're just showing debauchery. But some of these scenes, you're like, oh, there's some no, there's something going on here that's not <laughs> you. You know, it just occurred to me, um, I think Stevie Nicks is the only woman in this entire film who they talk to. Oh, wow. Okay. Are there any other women who are interviewed in this film? I think it's a complete sausage fest. Yeah, no women. Uh, yeah, I don't. No. Yeah. It's, Stevie Nicks shows up a little bit, but yeah. I can't I can't remember another woman talking about them in this film. It's all guys. Doesn't that say so much about this movie? <laughs> yeah. Was there anyone anyone black they talk like is everyone white too like yeah pretty much I that, that's true I mean that's 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 another obvious thing about the Eagles is yeah. uh, how white they were yeah that's a bunch of white guys um, they need a third gu- guitar player to really rock quote unquote rock it's got to be a double neck guitar yeah um, no women or POC voices necessary thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, and uh, when you see the crowds, there are no black people at the shows. Like, you know, oh no, yeah. Say what you will about Steely Dan. 
you know, another band that, uh, you know, your mileage may vary, but they had a, a very big black audience, whereas the Eagles were very white. No, I, de- I def- no, definitely made note of the fact that how white those audiences were. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and also Irving Azoff shows up around this point, too, who mm-hmm. was their sort of super producer. What's funny about this documentary is that he kind of looks like Bob Balaban today. He like does. he's very buttoned down. Yeah. You know, very well behaved kind of guy. But all the photos of him in the mid 70s, he's like giving the finger and helping to smash the hotel room and yeah. freaking out on people like he he the movie doesn't really um, tell you too much about Azoff's involvement and participation in that lifestyle. No, you just see him. I mean, a lot of it's just like him in the back of the plane holding a bunch of sheets of paper that like, and then you got Glenn Fry and Don Henley pointing and like, oh, just like, oh, we're, we're doing a business. Like <laughs> those are the other representations of yeah. Azoff. Azoff really earned their trust when they went on this trip to the Bahamas and they all brought drugs with them, including <laughs> Valium and weed. And Glenn Fry got busted at customs and Azoff somehow talk the customs officials out of charging him with possession. Yeah. Lord knows uh, how that all worked out. Did you really have to have the gift of gab to beat a customs charge. <laughs> like, if you notice like about their stories, like there's an element of cringe to like all their debauchery where it's supposed to be cool, but it just like, I'm just like, like they're trying to impress me too much. Mm-hmm. Like, for example, like when Glenn Fry tells a story about like life in the fast lane. Yeah. Like, it's like, wow, that's some dorky shit, dude. <laughs> he just turned his head life in the fat. Really? Anyway, so uh, around this point, more of the sort of the malevolence of the Eagles comes out. Like Fry was saying that he was inspired to write Lion Eyes, thinking mm-hmm. about this woman he saw at Dan Tana's, who was with an older gentleman. That whole song is about beautiful girls at the club who are kept women. <laughs> like, great subject matter, Glenn. The con- yeah, the contempt in that one, def- that definitely stuck with me. <laughs> this like gross like sexual entitlement yeah <laughs> and 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 lecturing too like this is sort of another lecturing song where you know at one point he's like you're still the same old girl you used to be or whatever like he's telling her who she is yeah it's like doesn't she know who she is better than you do glenn yeah no i yeah just never talk to glenn fry i think was a good <laughs> good uh directive for any woman <laughs> yeah did you ever see that, that that paparazzi photo of him buying like a a skin mag like at a no. stand? Oh, no. Okay, <laughs> and then it's, it'll be a fun little Easter egg I'll send you after the show. Okay, Glenn was Glenn was buying some porn. Yeah, yeah. Oh, nice. Uh, there's I think it was shortly before he, a couple years before he passed. I don't know, but oh, it was okay. uh, definitely something I filed away in the mental vault. <laughs> yeah. So this was around the time that Joe Walsh replaced. Bernie Ledden as their main guitarist. Ledden mm-hmm. was actually really annoyed at this point that he was in yeah. a band. I guess he remembered he used to be in a band with Graham Parsons, mm-hmm. and now he's in a band with uh, <laughs> Glenn Fry. So yeah. he poured a beer on his head and said, "You need to chill, man." And one and then was basically like uh, split the band from that point. Good for him. <laughs> yeah, he's living the dream. Get the and he, fuck out of there. So many women would have loved to have poured a beer on on Glenn Fry's head. Oh, can you imagine? I would. So Joe Walsh uh, enters the picture, and uh, Joe Walsh is easily my favorite member of the band. Oh, the, the like the whole just like kind of electricity, like the whole like mood of this film picks up when Joe Walsh gets here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he is a lovely, lovely man. Probably did some horrible, horrible things, <laughs> but um, well, he probably doesn't remember all the things he did. Like he seems to be 
like uh, Walsh was like, he's incredible on stage uh, when he's in his guitar solos and, and everything. Like he's such an incredible, uh, talented musician, but in the documentary, he says, I don't really remember any of that. Yeah. Yeah. Why? Well, it's funny. Like I, um, it was just funny to me how like the inclusion of Joe Walsh and how intense he is and like that kind of Keith Moon, that kind of like American Keith Moon vibe he had going on. Like, mm-hmm. like it just seemed to speak so much about how desperately like Glenn and Don Lanley wanted to be taken seriously as like quote unquote rockers. You know what I mean? Cause his personality is just such a bizarre match for this band. And like, mm-hmm. cause they're, uh, he seems cool and they don't. And at the same time, uh, Joe Walsh was very intimidated by what he perceived as major talents that yeah. Brian Henley had. And he said, and, and I'm sure that this is one of the things that he came back to be, to be more uh, forthcoming in the interviews is he said that as an alcoholic, this was his way of coping yeah. with feeling inadequate was to yeah. go overboard and to smash yeah. hotel rooms because he was so intimidated by the band. And he also had a sort of self, loathing like that he didn't deserve success or something Mm -hmm. like that like very interesting for him to say that in this film like to explain himself do you find that like joe walsh in his interviews like had a vulnerability that the other was or was able to show a vulnerability that the other eagles weren't yeah yeah as you know fry's version of candor is Mm -hmm. is is there sometimes but it tips over into anger and you know yeah. that if like for instance in that scene where fry's recounting the time that he almost killed don felder fry looks like if felder walked into the studio during that interview he would try to actually kill him yeah like he, he, yeah he doesn't seem like a memory as much as channeling a, an old feeling oh yeah no he like always looks like he's about to fight when he starts talking like he gets really at like he he's like punching the air and gets animated and he's like pointing like who are you pointing at glenn yeah. like no one <laughs> No one's yeah. here. It's just you in the interview. But there was that very funny story um, where John Belushi visits Joe Walsh. Yes, yes. And uh, they go to a fancy restaurant and they, they are not allowed in because they're not wearing black. So yeah. they go into an alleyway and spray paint their jeans black so that they can get in. And they wrecked uh, all these Queen Anne chairs in the restaurant. Yeah. That's like that's like a you know like you, that's an anecdote you'd expect from a member of a band that's much harder than uh, yeah. <laughs> the Eagles are much more interesting or much it's kind of just weird to think it's like the Hotel California like yeah everyone's mom's favorite band that uh <laughs> yeah well you know when I hear these stories about rock and roll debauchery mm-hmm. you know I I feel for the cleaning staff you know oh, like yeah. when Joe Walsh is talking about destroying these beautiful chairs in this nice restaurant or destroying the hotel room. All I can think of is the staff that have yeah, to pick up the pieces. That's a and bummer. That's something that I always find a little ugly when people are celebrating what jerks they are. Yeah. Is that there are people who have to clean up your mess. Yeah. Well, it's also like the, the hotel has insurance and they get, they like the publicity and mm-hmm. it's good. It was good publicity for the band. And yeah, it's just not good publicity for, or not good for anyone else to actually deal with the fallout. <laughs> So in this film, there's like a five minute stretch where they're talking about how Joe Walsh was the American king of room trash. He was the Keith Moon of the United States. They gave him a chainsaw for his birthday at one point. And then um, in a good example of the damage control of this documentary, they cut to Azoff, who says, Glenn and Don didn't really ever approve of the room trashing, but they understood it. (laughs) One <laughs> respect as rock and rollers. Yeah, see, that's just like, like that they just did. They did approve of the room trashing, dude. Yeah, 
Oh yeah, no, they would. They, they felt like it was such desperation. Like they had to outsource being a badass to like Joe Walsh. Yeah. So they could have like cre- like just instant rock credibility. Oh, yeah. I feel so embarrassed for like Brian Henley. Yeah. <laughs> like everything you're doing is so transparent, dudes. Yeah, imagine how mannered uh, Don Henley's hotel room trashing would be. Yeah, like, yeah. Throw, throw a copy of Walden at the wall. <laughs> <laughs> he throws uh, Ulysses by James Joyce through the window. Yeah. <laughs> it kills a bird because it's so yeah. heavy. <laughs> yeah. So um, this takes us to their, their masterpiece, uh, which was Rush released when their greatest hits was released in 1976. Uh, it already it, a greatest hits album. Yeah. Well, they didn't like it. It was Azoff's idea. But the thing mm-hmm. is what I like about that album is it renders all the other albums that came before it redundant. Like you don't have to buy Desperado. Yeah. <laughs> the good songs are all on the greatest hits. You're telling me they're not, they're not an album band. They don't, they're not a deep cut band. Yeah. <laughs> Coming in hot off the success of the greatest hits was hotel California. Yeah. Uh, the the title track, of course, is legendary. Maggie, did you know that the song was originally titled Mexican Reggae? No, and I'm <laughs> that sounds like a hate crime. Yeah. Hotel California has this what I call fake and Jamaican sound to it. Mm-hmm. Like it's people who are really uptight, like Don Henley's idea of reggae. Yeah. Well, it's just kind of like when you hear like Glenn Fry talking about like then you do a Chuck Berry beat. That's how you tell the story. You do a yeah. Chuck or like then he, when you see him like you're like then I discovered the blues and you're like yeah. there are no black voices in this documentary yeah. Yeah. <laughs> at yeah. all. Like yeah. a collaborator, you know, an influence, someone, an artist that influenced you, like anyone. <laughs> so while they were recording the album Hotel California, they were recording at the Criteria Studio in Miami. And -hmm. next door to them in the recording studio was Black Sabbath. (laughs) (laughs) Geezer Butler from Sabbath uh, checked Mm -hmm. out the recording studio the Eagles had been in after they left. Mm -hmm. They were switching recording rooms. And Butler said, before we could start recording, we had to scrape all the cocaine out of the mixing board. (laughs) (laughs) He said, I think they left about a pound of cocaine in the board. Like, how did the Eagles do that much cocaine, but make music that was that, like... Soft? Yeah, just, like, ben- almost benign, like... Yeah, it, it's true. There's no, like, uh, <laughs> major coke energy until the end. Like, the long run has a, is pretty cokey. No, I think Glenn Fry's like, solo albums have the most coke. Like, that... <laughs> yeah. The heat like... is on. Yeah, oh, God, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That sax solo, Jesus. Yeah. That sax solo sounds like a guy cornering you at a party that just did a. <laughs> yeah. Wants to tell you about his great investment idea. That's like how that sax solo feels to me. <laughs> What's your uh, feeling about the song Hotel California, Maggie? You know what? That's a good one. I don't seek it out, but I enjoy it if it's on. The outro mm-hmm. is beautiful. I found like the creative dynamic between Felder and Joe Walsh was way more interesting. Mm-hmm. Than the one between Fry and and Henley and the various like songwriters like Fry and Henley out would outsource stuff to. Yeah, that's true. You never really get a sense of the way that like John and Paul. You can right. get the sense of them working together. And this film is all from the perspective of Henley and Fry. But the only artists that you see collaborating with each other in this documentary are Felder and Walsh. Yeah, yeah. It's like yeah, exactly. And it just seemed like a really it was kind of. 
interesting the way that <laughs> and it was endearing and kind of I felt like revealed a lot about their process as artists. This is an incredible little thing I discovered mm-hmm. in my research. According to the producer, Julia Phillips, she wanted to make a movie out of Hotel California. Phillips was the producer who did Taxi Driver and Close Encounters, who mm-hmm. wrote the the great memoir, You'll Never Eat Lunch in This Town Again. She mm-hmm. had a heroic uh, cocaine problem at this point. Mm. And so she met up with the Eagles at the height of their cocaine problem. Oh, God. And she got their manager, Irving Azoff, to arrange the meeting. But Phillips was like doing tons of coke at this point. And according to Phillips, she brought out a large amount of coke and offered it around to them when they got to her house. And she said in her book, everyone but Irving partakes throughout. She says, (laughs) I do my riff like she does her pitch. Don Henley seems bright and responsive. I get kind of hung up on his ears, though, which stick out. (laughs) (laughs) a recalcitrant glenn fry does a lot of blow and seems angry about it they seem sparked by the idea but by then everyone except irving is pretty lit by the blow they Mm. agree to think about it so she mentioned in her book that they were doing coke together Mm -hmm. in the uh, unauthorized biography henley remembers the phillips meaning differently he says she's a liar (laughs) Both Glenn and I remember that day quite vividly. We had gone to her house reluctantly. We'd already had some bad experiences with movie people. We were pretty sure that they were just going to take our songs and ruin them. We knew enough about the film business to know that you have to relinquish all control and that it's somebody else's vision, just like rock videos are today. (laughs) So this is really, this is a mean quote from Henley. He says, Coke was at the peak of its popularity in Hollywood and Phillips was in the process of flaming out her career on it. Damn. We sat there polite, but not terribly friendly. We were too wary to be friendly in an attempt to loosen us up. She dragged out this huge ashtray filled with a mound of Coke. She offered us some and we said, no, we didn't know her that well. And it was a business meeting. Okay. But whose story, whose story are you more likely to believe? Hers. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the Eagles turning down Coke in 1977. Yeah. yeah get the fuck out of here. I can see them just hoovering it all up and just yeah. like, no, they don't like the idea. But like yeah. after they've hoovered everything up. Yeah. I just love how she says they all did it except for Irving. And then Henley says, none of us did it. Yeah. It was her problem because she had the Coke problem. Okay. Okay. Don. Right. <laughs> but the Glenn, I mean, I think I'm more inclined to believe um, her story because she talks about Glenn Fry being angry. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, that, that tracks. <laughs> yeah. And and uh, and Henley's ears. Maybe that was why he grew the big afro. <laughs> no, I think it's... His ears. So he could be more prominent on stage behind the yeah. drum set. <laughs> this is an example of like Henley thinking he's really profound and he's blowing your mind. Mm-hmm. He, when they ask him what Hotel California means, at first he gets mad and he's like, oh, I hate this question, you know, and... People always ask me, what does the song mean? And, and, you know, it's whatever you want it to mean. But then he says, what it means is, <laughs> he says, it's a journey from innocence to experience. And then five <laughs> minutes later, he says, the hotel itself could be taken as a metaphor, not only for the myth-making of Southern California, but for the myth-making that is the American dream, because it is a fine line between the American dream 
and the American Nightmare. Oh, the way he pauses when he's going to drop the American Nightmare for effect. Like, he is so pleased with himself. Like, he's but, like... But doesn't that sound like something that you read in a college essay? Yeah, yeah. Like, it, I'm definitely getting, like, land the contrast vibes. Like, yeah. we live in a society... Don, we live in a society, oh Henley. <laughs> so we're about the 90-minute mark of this documentary, and this is where it starts to really get good. The Felder stuff starts. Yeah. Uh, Felder wrote the song called Victim of Love for the mm-hmm. album, and he wanted to sing it, and Henley wanted it instead. <laughs> <laughs> and this is a quote from Henley. He says, I have no recollection of anybody being promised anything. We did let Mr. Felder sing it. It simply didn't come up to band standards. How devastating was every Mr. Felder? It was so good. Like I actually misremembered it. I thought he spent the whole movie calling him Mr. Felder, but it's only about two or three times. That's how devastating it is when he does it. Yeah, Yeah. it's just... It's like, is this a documentary or a court deposition? Yeah. (laughs) Mr. Felder... So, so yeah, this is where the bad blood starts to come out. Uh, and, and can you tell the, the scuzzy story about when they took him out for dinner? Oh, so it's Azoff who takes him out for dinner, right? Yeah. Yeah. So Azoff lures, um, Felder away and, you know, and while they're out to dinner, I guess at a diner or whatever on the corner, just Azoff just tells him, oh, by the way, Don Henley's singing the song right now. (laughs) They recorded the track with Felder's vocals. And while they were out for dinner, they erased it and put Henley's voice over it. Yeah. yeah, So low that they actually like tricked him. Like they had this to lure him away. (laughs) And, and like the Irishman style, like Azoff just told him it's what it is, you know? (laughs) (laughs) So (laughs) Felder is so mad. So he co-wrote Hotel California and they're pretending he didn't, he wrote victim of love and then they rewrote it and took his voice out of it. Yeah. So yeah. he's bearing grudges at this point. There are so many scenes of him, like, kind of like, like sulking. There's a lot of photos yeah. where it looks like he's sulking yeah. or you just see him kind of like skulking around in aviator um, sunglasses and wearing some like bonkers, like yeah. shirt with a native American embroidered on the back. Just like oh. a lot of regrettable, like clothing <laughs> yeah. choices in this documentary. Yeah. He has a jean jacket with the racist Chicago Blackhawks logo on the back. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just like, it's amazing. I usually love this era of fashion and think it looks cool. But like these guys have somehow made this all not look cool. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, another amazing part is uh, when Meisner quits the band because they had a huge hit with Take It to the Limit. Yeah. Did Meisner also um, write that or did he? um, I think he did. Yeah. And it was it was a big hit. And of course, that probably bothered Fry and Henley because why is Meisner having a hit song? Yeah, that and it's like, I feel like there are ways they could have gotten around. Like, I feel like there are solutions that didn't have to involve Meisner leaving the band. Yeah. Well, Meisner hated having to sing it because it's such a falsetto and it has to hit such high notes. Yeah. Yeah. and Meisner got sick of it. He told the um, band that he didn't want to sing it live anymore. And Fry phoned him up and started screaming at him to tell him yeah. that you have to give the fans what they wanted to hear. These people have been waiting for years to hear this song. We have to do it. <laughs> and he said, Fry says, you think I like having to sing Take It Easy or Peaceful Easy Feeling? I'm tired of those songs. At this point in the documentary, I'm tired of Take It Easy. I've heard it yeah. so many times. But let yeah. me tell you something. The only time, like... It kind of had a little bite, like when I was starting to warm up to it, is when Travis Tritt was singing it. Yeah. <laughs> Get someone else. Like, oh, no, someone's actually leaning into the country. Okay. All yeah. right. Now it kinda, I kind of get yeah. this song. So 
and then another bitchy moment from Henley, because uh, he's complaining about Meisner uh, having anxiety on stage. And Henley says he'd been out partying the night before with a couple of girls and a bottle of vodka. It's like, oh, very nice, Don. Yeah. Really? What, Don? What were you doing, Don? <laughs> <laughs> what were you up to? So, so. How uh, were <laughs> <laughs> So he refused to perform it for an encore because they were called back to do an encore and he was, they were like, take it to the limit. And he was like, no, I'm not doing it. I'm, I told you, I'm never doing that song anymore. And so he and Fry got into this shoving match mm-hmm. and there were cops around that were trying to break it up. And Henley got in between them and <laughs> Fry said, Henley said, stay out of this to the cops. Oh, yeah. It's personal. It's private and personal. <laughs> he says, he says, this is personal and it's private. Real fucking private. <laughs> and the cops kind of understood and backed up. Yeah. Don Henley, the cop whisperer. <laughs> <laughs> so Meisner quit the band and was replaced with Timothy B. Schmidt. Who seems like a lovely guy. Yeah. Like, and must be, have a lot of patience to deal, like to kind of walk in with that band and just like. Well, but Fry tells a tale out of school and says that um, when they wanted Schmidt to join the band, Azoff said that, uh, oh, I saw him out uh, at the club last night and he was all gacked up and uh, pissed. And Fry's like, well, maybe a guy who's been playing for 40 bucks a night for 10 years, he deserves to get gacked up and pissed. You can see why. So it's like like perfect, perfect guy to bring into this dynamic. Yeah. Like, is it... um like, do you feel like I get a little bit of a see? You feel a little bit of a savior complex with, with Gun Fry talking. Oh, but I just plucked him out of squalor and no, yeah. <laughs> which I mean to, I mean to some degree is true. But just like mm-hmm. he is pretty proud of himself right there. Yeah, <laughs> little big pat on the back for Glenn Fry. <laughs> so the the bad blood continues between Felder and mm-hmm. and Henley and Fry because. Um, Glenn and Don consider themselves to be the leaders of the yeah. group, even though they were all being paid equally. Mm-hmm. Um, they split into factions and Felder got Walsh on his side as their opposition. Mm-hmm. Fry says that uh, eventually that he and Don Henley started not getting along and they had to top Hotel California somehow. So they did this record called The Long Run, which mm-hmm. they called The Long One because it took two years to finish. Yeah. And they had like no songs and Timothy's like the new guy like shows up with a song and they have yeah. nothing. Like the rest of the band is nothing. <laughs> the new guy shows up with one of their best songs. <laughs> yeah. Uh, another. Yeah. Like when they lean into R&B, like when, yeah, they. <laughs> <laughs> it's much more acceptable. So at this point, the drug use was at its peak. Um, and in fact, Fry and Henley look like shit by this mm-hmm. point. Like they're really hollowed out. Yeah. And they got rid of the beards. Oh, yeah. Another song that's okay from this album is In the City, which we like because of its use in The Warriors. Mm. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. But but then there's one of the worst things I've ever heard in my life, which is called The Greeks Don't Want No Freaks. Oh, no. Is the B-side to I Can't Tell You Why, which sounds like uh, the Eagles doing a shitty version of Birthday by the Beatles. Yeah. No, thank you. And uh, it and it also has total like a uh, frat date rape lyrics and stuff like it's yeah, so that tracks. gross. That tracks, yeah. <laughs> They're gross dudes. But like, how old are you guys too? Like, you're in your early thirties and you're still yeah. like frat boys. Yeah. And this took two years. <laughs> they have another horrible song on here called "The Disco Strangler." Ah. Oh. 
Uh, and then the, another song called like the King of Hollywood or something, which has got total uh, Me Too lyrics too. Yeah, they're. Oh. So this leads to the incredible fight that broke up the band, which is in the documentary. And can mm-hmm. you set the stage for us on this one, Maggie? Um, where are they playing? Are they playing in California? Yeah, they're playing a benefit for um, Alan Cranston, who was the senator for California. Oh, uh, this is the one where um, must have been in L.A. Okay, so they're meeting Alan Cranston and you know. Glenn Fry and um, Don Henley are very excited to be in the thralls of power. Yeah, there's and, nothing more rock and roll yeah. than hanging out with Democratic senators for a fundraiser. Yeah, so they um, – and Glenn and um, Don are supporting him because of his um, – I think they're, quote, unquote, what he's done for the environment. They didn't really, like, mm-hmm. expound on that, but he's an environmentalist, so – yeah. And and he's probably friends with Jerry Brown, who was yes. the governor, who was also dating Linda Ronstadt. Oh, okay. And um, he's in, and he shows up in this too. Mm-hmm. Um, so what happens is, um, I guess they're doing a receiving line, shaking hands, meeting um, the senator. Well, everyone's thanking the senator for what he does. Which, yeah, is there anything less rock and roll than shaking a senator's hand and thanking him for all? Like you imagine, like like just shaking fine. Diane Feinstein's hand. Like, thank you for all you do, Diane Feinstein. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. And then I guess Felder's response during down the receiving line was like, or whatever you do, or what was the exact quote? Like that yeah, well, he says thank you, and and Felder says, You're welcome, I guess. <laughs> That's it. That's it. But Fry overheard this and just just filled with rage instantly. Yeah, yeah. Um, just like, wow, Fry, you, you embarrassed me in front of a senator and being breaking up a band over it. That is like the op- the antithesis of punk. <laughs> yeah. So, so Fry seethed with rage for a little while. This was before their show. So before they mm-hmm. hit the stage, um, Fry whipped a beer bottle at Felder, uh, missed him, but hit the wall. And they got so mad at each other and that anger spilled out onto the stage and they played the set. And in between the songs, they're telling each other to go fuck yourself. Yeah. And they're just like, oh, I can't wait for you. Three more songs. Like, they're just going to fuck each other up after the... And they don't. They don't, like, fuck each other. That's the thing. They talk, like, so much talk. And it's like, Don Felder, like, smashes a guitar and gets out of there. I did like like the picture of Glenn Fry, like, with double burning it. Double burning it. Yeah, that was incredible. It would have been so good in this documentary if they had finished in between take it easy and peaceful, easy feeling. They're like, I'm going to fucking kill you. And like, that's just like a thing like that kind of quip. But that will just be like an anecdote the senator tells. It's fine. Yeah. Like, it's no big deal. <laughs> yeah. I don't think Alan Cranston was horrified that Don Felder was so rude to him in a receiving line. For what? But- yeah. And it's a kind of like pretty low on the rude scale. Like, it's kind of just like a bitchy aside. Like, it's. <laughs> but you also have to factor in that these guys are like coked to the gills. Yeah. Right. So, like, the most minor indiscretion uh, in a cokehead's mind would just turn into like the biggest transgression. Especially if you're Glenn Fry and you're already predisposed to anger. Like, you're yeah. already zero to 60, and then you just add like stimulants to the equation. Yeah. So the the part one pretty much ends here. The mm-hmm. band breaks up and then we have a montage of the boys in happy times with mm-hmm. the maudlin Don Henley ballad. And and then that's the end of part one. And then we go to part two, which is, mm-hmm. you know, I would say that the meatiest part of this documentary is the the classic Eagles period. But the second part has some of the most incredible passive aggressive anger. Mm. Yes. In the documentary, even though it's a less interesting time to document, 
mm-hmm. the the bad blood is still very yes. very evident. Yeah, like when they're trying, like I was really entertained by Timothy B. Schmidt because like he's like, okay, I've just got to like you know, like I just got into like the millionaire pantheon. Like I just got into this like. I can finally have real money and you're just going to pull the plug. And, like, yep. and then he's like lingering. I mean, it's a good thing you wrote that hit because it's like, yeah. okay, he's probably just getting money, you know, like from that over the years, assuming like Glenn Fry and Don Henley didn't just screw him over. But like. Yeah. So Schmidt is the luckiest of the Eagles because he yeah. joined the band just when they self-destructed and then he mm-hmm. got a second chance. Yes, exactly. But let's talk for a few minutes about the solo careers of, of Glenn Fry and Don Henley. Please, um, let's. <laughs> Fry, uh, you know, The Heat Is On, very coked out 80s song. But mm-hmm. anybody who does a song on Miami Vice gets an automatic pass. And Glenn Fry has two s- classic songs on Miami Vice, Smuggler's Blues, which mm-hmm. was a whole episode of Vice was built around it, starring him. Mm-hmm. And You Belong to the City. Yeah. And so Glenn Fry, he's got his short hair. Like he's wearing like... He's wearing like blazers that are pastel and like neon, and he is <laughs> like Glenn, he loves he loves cocaine and the world caught up. Like, and he <laughs> yeah, Glenn Fry is like the perfect choice to to star as a, a sort of a, in the Smuggler's Blues episode. He's got a lot of acting and screen time. I wouldn't say he's a great actor, but you can you you believe that he would be friends with Sonny Crockett on the show. I mean, you know, like in in Jerry Maguire, yeah, I can see him as an asshole, like sitting at a at a, you know, like sitting at a desk, like in a suit, yelling at someone on a phone. Like yeah. that's not hard. Like there's certain he has like a presence, Glenn Fry, that makes sense if you kind of plug him into certain scenarios. Mm-hmm. And he's competent. Like he's like, yeah, you get, like he gets the job done. But I wouldn't. He's probably not someone that has range or like. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. And uh, also, uh, Glenn Fry and Don Johnson starred in a series of Pepsi commercials that were directed by Ridley Scott. That's no. not a bad. That's not a bad gig. Yeah. Yeah, there were these ads with uh that were like Miami Vice lighting with uh, Don Johnson and Glenn Fry traveling around looking for a Pepsi. So where are we going anyway? What are you asking me for? It's your town, pal. That's my song. Hey, I'm everywhere, pal. Knock it off, Glenn. Glenn Fry seems like he had a real good time in the 80s. Yeah. Like, I mean, he's already freaking rich from the Eagles, you know, and he's probably just making, like, so much mailbox money because, like, you know, like, publishing and songwriting, and then just, like, he just does whatever he wants. You contrast this with Don Henley, who Mm -hmm. was making all these mission statements all the time, like his song dirty laundry i want to go off on dirty laundry for a minute please because uh it's a song about those prying media the media just won't get off our backs and you know we're being lied to all the time gee i wonder why don henley doesn't like the media hmm. <laughs> when did that happen 1980 like- uh the song is 1982 but the incident is 1980 okay yeah so my memories of what the incident is, is um, two underage sex workers, I think 16-year-olds were at Don, partying of Don Henley. Maybe he was helping them with their homework. I don't know. Like, maybe. <laughs> yeah, he could have been helping them with their homework. He did phone a madam to engage their services, though. Mm-hmm. So uh, normally you would get a tutor elsewhere. He's like, hey, can, you, can your sex workers read? Well, I would be happy to tutor them. <laughs> I'm very concerned about you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I I was an English major. I am done. Please, um, 
So one overdoses. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if it's, I don't remember if it's a fatal overdose, but it definitely mm-hmm. requires medical attention. But he, he, he did call 911, and that has been indicated as an example of him being a great guy. He didn't have to phone when somebody overdosed. Wow. <laughs> you know, he, <laughs> who did the Nobel Prize go to that year? I know. <laughs> um, a 16-year-old girl was found naked and claiming she had overdosed on quaaludes and cocaine. She was arrested for prostitution while a 15-year-old girl found in the house was arrested for being under the influence of drugs. So did they, like, did the, did the girls, like, face, like, more retribution than Henley? <laughs> I believe the girls were charged with prostitution. And wow. Henley was uh, charged with solicitation or giving narcotics to an underage person and paid a $2,000 fine. Wow. His ego is just incredible. Like, I think he feels like there's, he's ascended, or he's, like, elevated to, like, this this plateau that's just untouchable. Like. Mm-hmm. Like, it seems like when he starts writing songs again with the Eagles, when he bring, comes in with Get Over It and and talks about everyone feels like you've been rich and for so long and you've been isolated from regular people for so long and you've been white for so long. Like, do you absolutely like there are people that have been victimized by like yeah. <laughs> systems and structures that don't get rich at like in the 70s? <laughs> well, you know, this is what I mean about. Henley, because he's always lecturing and, and, and the Sermon from the Mount all the time. But like, right. he's a participant in this stuff, too. Yeah, yeah. He's like Sting with less charisma. <laughs> so so Henley's uh, off doing, uh, you know, The Boys of Summer mm-hmm. and The End of the Innocence. They were, they were big pop hits. But I think Fry's having a better time. He's being on Miami Vice. He's doing Pepsi commercials with Don Johnson. Mm-hmm. He's doing Beverly Hills Cop. Uh, yeah. But they both... Uh, sort of got to the end of the road in the late 80s and early 90s. Hilariously, uh, Henley signed with David Geffen's record label. Again. Yeah. But the Eagles sued David Geffen in the 70s for their <laughs> songwriting. And uh, they settled out of court. And then a few years later, Henley re-signs with Geffen Records. And then at the end of the decade, he leaves the label and Geffen sues him for $30 million. And... Like, I mean, Geffen was venomous in his talking head. With, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well. Which I kind of get. Like, yeah, if I, who do you think you are, Don Henley? In the documentary, Geffen said to Irving Azoff over the Don Henley contract, he says, I'd sooner die than let you fuck me. Yeah, that was incredible. And it, it was like, just like icy. And okay, when Don Henley <laughs> was talking about how the labels wasn't supporting him and he was getting yeah. nickel and dime, like I wonder what that actually means. Yeah. Like what I what does that like yeah. were they were they prioritizing acts that like young people actually like? Yeah. Is that? <laughs> and and he was bitching about how when you do music videos you're forced to become an actor and a choreographer and he looked down on that. And it's like You did a video You're a rock you just, star, dude. You did a video where you sat on the back of a truck and just all you did was lip sync. <laughs> Bro. Yeah. He obviously cares about his image, but he's acting like he doesn't. Yeah. Another uh toxic male song was All She Wants to Do Is Dance about that oh. dumb that dumb girl partying in a war zone. Yeah. D- <sighs> Have they ever like met a woman? Like <laughs> I mean, I know they've met lots of women, but like, have they ever like been acquainted with like the interior life of a woman? I, I don't think so. Like, did throw read? Like, did he he write any poems about women and their interior lives? 
there's a funny part when when it starts to look like there's no no future for these guys but to reform the Eagles. Mm-hmm. Uh, Don Henley has a line that reminded me of uh, the George H.W. Bush episode of The Simpsons where mm-hmm. he's writing his memoirs because Henley says, for me personally, I think I had proved pretty much everything I needed to prove in my solo career. <laughs> what? What? <laughs> What, what what are you talking about? Well, it's like, you, oh, who, to who? You, you didn't just go back to the Eagles because you needed the money. You did it because you've proved everything you needed to prove. Like to who? What? Yeah, like, I don't know. That just sounds like bullshit. You won an MTV music video award. Like this is like some bullshit you hear a guy say in like an AA meeting. Like, I decided well, I didn't want to play professional football anymore. I, I proved all I needed to prove. <laughs> It's like you blew out your knee. That's why you left the game. (laughs) Okay. How cringe was that Travis Tritt video? Like the the footage of of them walking down the train track with Travis Tritt? Yeah. Well, Henley definitely looked like he lost the bet. I I think, uh, you know, uh, Don Felder was probably pretty happy about it. Yeah. But uh, this is where Don Henley turns into flannel shirt Don Henley. Yeah. He's ponytail Don Henley. Yeah, tucked in, tucked in flannel shirt, Don Henley. And necklace. Uh, He's got like a crystal or something. He's necklace <laughs> Henley. <laughs> I was getting really annoyed by his flannel shirts. Like he, you know, when men just stop dressing differently and just have the same clothes for the rest yeah. of their lives. Yeah. That that's where Henley's at now. Yeah, he's like he's at the uh, my wife buys clothes for me. <laughs> <laughs> There's a cringe moment in the uh, in the documentary where they performing their MTV concert, which I don't remember happening, but they make it sound mm-hmm. like the Elvis comeback special. Like oh, it was a great moment when we performed at MTV. Uh, I think they did an unplugged. Yeah, but it's like uh, they they were talking about it like it was this epochal moment where everyone realized they still love the Eagles. Yeah, there are these moments where they talk about how like. And it's like, yeah, people that grew up with you love you, like, and their kids, maybe, but like, yeah. I don't remember them. Like, I remember them, like, as kind of like a hazy presence in the 90s. Like, yeah, that's a thing that, like, mm-hmm. that people older than me are really excited about, and but didn't really kind of penetrate, like, the youth culture in any way that I, I was aware of. Or, so this is the cringe moment, uh, was at that MTV concert where Henley forgets the lyrics to one of the newer songs, like they're yeah. performing on stage and he totally blanks and mm-hmm. doesn't know. And, and Henley's describing that as, you know, and that was a great ice breaking moment. You know, it was really great to sort of loosen up and stuff. And I was like, I don't blame you for forgetting the lyrics to your boring song because it's like you lecturing again. No wonder yeah. you forgot the lyrics. <laughs> I was like, it was actually nice to see like Glenn Fry have some levity. Cause he just starts laughing yeah. and he's like in such a good mood. And it's like, wow, you, are capable of joy like yeah. it was just yeah like fry uh you know i have always thought of them as both being pricks but mm-hmm. in the documentary fry's version of being a prick is more acceptable because it comes and goes yeah. whereas henley is a prick all the way through yeah yeah i know that they consider themselves to be democrats yeah but things that they're concerned about and their fan base just suggests maga to me oh the um the song that don henley brought in that was supposed to be like their big like comeback song it's just like Get a over boom- it. like yeah a boomer getting angry at his tv so he's probably <laughs> hearing like he was probably hearing like lorena bobbitt talk about being a victim of sexual abuse and, <laughs> and like the menendez brothers i'm trying to think of like what was in the news at that time 
<laughs> yeah, what was, was he like, complaining about? What was he? I'm trying to think. Like, what was he complaining about? <laughs> That's the we've still got it part where like mm-hmm. we decided we didn't want to just do an oldies show. We wanted to have some new songs. So Don Henley <laughs> wrote this song called "Get Off My Lawn," and, <laughs> and they're just playing like this Chuck Berry like. It's just so boring. I think like what really kind of prevents me from connecting with the Eagles. It's like, they're smart, but they don't have like Glenn Fry and Don Henley are clearly intelligent, but they don't have any depth. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like they don't, I don't know. Like, what do you really believe with the songs? Like, it seems like they're about everything with them is about an inch deep. Like they're not like, there's nothing really profound. They haven't really tapped into anything about the human condition. I really, you know, like nothing about them lyrically. Like they're, they're this like, encapsulation of being incredibly good technically and very good lyrics, but it's not interesting. Like it doesn't. Not as interesting as they think they are. Exactly. Exactly. They have a a scene where they go around for round two of Don Felder Mm -hmm. abuse where Felder uh, realized that now that the Eagles are back together, Henley and Fry are making X amount of money and all the other guys are basically the side men and they're getting Mm -hmm. a, a lot less. Yeah. And, Felder considered himself to be a member of the band, but Henley and Fry considered themselves to be the leaders of the band. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, Henley said, somebody's got to be the quarterback. Somebody's got to snap the ball. Somebody's got to run with the ball. Somebody's got to block. We always understood that. Some of the other people apparently didn't understand that. Well, if someone's blocking, someone's running with the ball. Isn't that different people all doing that stuff? Yeah. Like, it's not all the, yeah. the quarterback isn't also the tight end. Yeah. <laughs> like, everyone has a role here. Well, Henley got mad at um, Felder for wanting to sing Victim of Love, saying, well, that would be like if I decided I'm playing lead guitar. That's not your position, Mr. Felder. <laughs> but uh, it's like, you know what? You should play lead guitar, Henley. Like, can you play the guitar? Yeah. <laughs> the Beatles never did shit like that. They're Paul's playing the drums on a few Beatles songs. Like they just took turns. They let Ringo have songs. They yeah. It wasn't a bit. They didn't like have to lure him somewhere and like do him dirty yeah. and like, yeah. treat him like a child and pull him away. I think it's interesting. Like when you kind of contrast the Beatles and like the Beatles and the Eagles documentaries, when you see the stuff kind of happening in the studio, it's interesting. Like, where it's like anything I've kind of seen, any kind of process stuff in the Eagles wasn't particularly like, it kind of sounds like everything was just kind of a finished idea and it was brilliant. And someone came to, same to, someone came to them with a piece of something and if they're brilliant, they made it whole. Yeah. But there's nothing, they're really interesting story or like kind of emotion or like empathy behind it. Yeah, you got me thinking that in in Get Back, there's that scene where Paul McCartney seems to pull the yeah. the music of Get Back out of out of air, like or he just I, suddenly comes up with the riff. But in in this documentary, Joe Walsh goes like, and they're like, "What's that?" And he's like, "Oh, it's just a riff I do when I'm tuning up. That's or, what we're gonna do our next song. That's Life well, in the Fast Lane." Well, no, that was more so. I was thinking of like when like you see like Ringo working out like the beginning of like was it Octopus's Garden? Yeah. Or, and then, like, all of a sudden you see, like, George kind of know he's he's got something coming coming over to him, like, and mm-hmm. kind of supporting him. Like, things like that were interesting that I didn't really get to see any of that because I just didn't find the connection between Glenn Fry and Don Henley compelling. Like, was there anything about them, too, like, what, the way they spoke about each other where you felt like there was something magnetic between them? Or- it was 
No, I mean, if there ever was anything like that in their heyday, uh-huh. uh, they were, you know, chemically <laughs> enhanced or, or, right. or, you know, really, really drunk. Like, I'm sure that it was not very coherent or logical. Um, but their return to becoming a band again was kind of like purely mercenary. Like, yeah. they, they did it because people were willing to pay them untold millions of dollars to mm-hmm. get back together. A lot of the shows that they re- reformed Eagles did were corporate events mm-hmm. too. They I didn't just that. go yeah. on tour. They did, you know, if Microsoft was having a conference, the Eagles would perform at it. That tracks. So yeah, <laughs> like I get, like, I guess the most I get from like the dynamic between Glenn Fry and, and Henley is that like, they just like spotted a good opportunity in each other. Mm-hmm. And that's better. I don't find any kind of real connection with them beyond that. And I read an interview with Fry a, a couple of years before the Eagles reunited, mm-hmm. where he said, no way in hell. We tried it. We mm-hmm. didn't get along. We'll never get along. Yeah. So obviously money talks. And they got they they the Travis Tritt video was the excuse to get them into the room together. Yeah. And they put up with each other's company. None of the music that they did as a band, again, was very good. I guess the closest mm-hmm. they came to a hit song was, a, again, a Timothy B. Schmidt song. Which yeah. Did, did get radio play you still do hear it but uh their last album uh in the mid to late 2000s has this pretentious title called long road out of eden oh yes that photo shoot how embarrassing is that <laughs> when them, they're when they're in the and, desert and they're looking back and they're in their all black on black suits and stuff yeah. and, oh so painful like why are you show? do you have any self-awareness do you know what dorks you look like <laughs> But that album didn't have a record label. It was an exclusive deal they made with Walmart. Mm-hmm. It was kind of interesting to talk about how like they had pioneered the future of music commerce, <laughs> yeah. especially considering like how you know. <laughs> yeah, and and of course, when you hear that the Eagles have a deal with Walmart, you mm-hmm. immediately your eyes turn to Don Henley and go, "Hey, Mister Environmentalist." Yeah, yeah. How how do you feel about your album coming out with Walmart? And he says in the documentary, they've become a much greener company. And that was important to me. It's like, what does that even mean? Wow. So much of Don Henley's is stuff where he just says things and none of it is interrogated. It's kind of just very vague. And you're like, yeah, but he says it with such a confidence that I'm sure it means something. I'm sure. But I was looking at the titles for the songs on Long Road Out of Eden. One of them is called frail grasp on the big picture oh lord which is like oh god yet another uh lecture from professor henley yeah Sounds like I, he's telling a girl that she doesn't know as much as he does oh okay how was the was don henley ever more satisfied of himself than when he came up with the um the tractor metaphor the rusty uh tractor yeah. metaphor <laughs> and he dragged it out for way longer than it needed to. Yeah, he he compared the band to a, an old tractor. There might be some rust on the top, but the engine's still working, and, and you can, can still you can, get out there. You can stop right there, but he keeps like, great, that's the saint, okay. And then he does that little head tilt, <laughs> looks right in the camera, like, dude, I am dropping gems on you. <laughs> like the <laughs> But it sounds a lot to me like they're trying to convince themselves that they're still relevant. And yeah, yeah. What what they can still do is they can charge three hundred dollars a ticket. Yeah, like I didn't need to know you went to China. You can just tell your mom or like your <laughs> yeah. kids. You know, <laughs> there's so much footage that I did not need. Uh, like there is so much of that story that people really didn't need in that second part. But you can tell like they thought it was like this, like in the hero's journey of the Eagles. This was. 
Yeah, they went to the Great Wall of China. In fact, they helped to uh, end this, the Cold War. They made it sound like this. it's like, no, some uh, tech firm in China was willing to fly you over to perform at their annual conference. Oh, can you, you know? imagine like the, the corporate boxes at Eagle shows? Like just, just so many dudes with like pleated pants. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, And uh, bolo ties. Yeah. Oh. And so the film ends with testimonials from Stevie Nicks, et cetera, mm-hmm. about how this band is still big and important. And this is like where the movie sort of, it's almost like, okay, they got away with so much yeah. in this film. It was so funny. Uh, there's so much incriminating evidence in the film that it's okay if it has a conventional ending. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it sounds like they're convincing themselves that they're still important. Yeah. A lot of, it felt like a lot of that was, um, Especially just uh, well, it's also interesting the fact that the lack of the female voices in the in the film is like like looking at the crowds. So much of the audience were women. Like this is, it's like they're just women are just kind of a receptacle for their greatness and for like and like a muse and but they, there's no agents. Women have no agency in the world of the Eagles. Yeah, it's like they want to get involved with these women so that they can dump them and then write a song about that bitch. Yeah, yeah, you know, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's like, um, yeah, and and uh, and also um, Henley had a, an affair with Stevie Nicks, which yes. the documentary doesn't mention. Right, yes, a lot about Henley the doc doesn't mention. <laughs> yeah. Probably, maybe there's a five hour cut that yeah. Henley. Has, this is uh, this is why I want the Felder Walsh cut. I want yeah. <laughs> justice <Yeah>. for Felder. <laughs> Justice for Felder. In in Felder's Tell All, which the Eagles uh, delayed from release for two years in the U.S., it came out in the U.K. first, uh, called Heaven or Hell, My Life as an Eagle. Um, they they stopped, They tried to stop it from being published, but Felder See, that, repeatedly- that's a, that's a bitch move. Yeah, <laughs> I know. That's a, that's a bitch move. Yeah. <laughs> But it makes Felder's participation in the documentary interesting because they, well, they, they tried to stop this book from being published. And it's like, dude, if you try to stop this book, I'm like, damn, I need to read this book. <laughs> There's going to be some hot tea. <laughs> you're, su- you're suing for this not to come out? Damn, I am. I can't I wait am, to read it. I am ordering this the minute I log off of you. <laughs> yeah. You're going to. Oh, please. <laughs> uh, in the book, Felder repeatedly refers to Henley and Fry derisively as the gods. Oh, yes, I'm reading this book. Oh, this is going to be my new bedtime story. <laughs> that is my favorite thing in the world. Arrogant dudes just being exposed. <laughs> and like, and, and, um, and alpha males versus alpha males too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, yeah. I think like guys like Timothy B. Schmidt and to a lesser extent, Joe Walsh, they're not the alphas the way that Bernie Leiden Mm-hmm. pouring beer on Glenn Fry, you know, right. like that's, that's alpha behavior. Yeah. You got a Randy double- Meisner wasn't an alpha. No, but you got anyone of a double neck guitar is an alpha. Yeah. Anyone saying to Glenn Fry, no, you no, let me sing my song as an alpha. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> and then it's about pecking order of alphas, like Henley mm-hmm. and Fry are the alpha alphas. Who do you think alpha over? Like, do you think Fry because of just these, like the aggression or do you think Henley because- I think that when when it all comes down to it, Glenn was the alpha because when the Eagles were talking about getting together in the early 90s and the rest of the band, even Henley, got together for that, but they couldn't convince Fry to do it, so it didn't Mm -hmm. happen. 
Right. So so I would think that if if Fry and the other guys were all together and they couldn't get Henley, they'd probably go, okay, fine, and they would just go ahead. Mm-hmm. But Fry not being a part of it stopped it from happening. So mm-hmm. Fry is the alpha. Yeah. And Fry's death, at first, Henley said that that was the end of the Eagles, but then about a year later, they started touring again with Glenn Fry's son. Really? I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah, hmm. and and uh, that's and, that's and some wolf. Some that's wolf bad Van news Van for Helen. Don Henley's kid. <laughs> <laughs> that means someday he's going to have to tour with uh, with Glenn the Fry's Eagles. kid. They're going to find like Don Felder's kid and abuse <laughs> and just like the Eaglets. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, the history of the Eagles. One of the my favorite music documentaries, if not my favorite. Mm. Just simmer. Yeah, it's fun. I mean, it's great. You get to watch like simmering resentment uh, between petty men. Between yeah. petty, angry men with not much depth to them, but a massive sense of entitlement. Just, oh, that's theater. So, Maggie, wonderful having you on the show. Um, can you tell our listeners what you're up to? Um, right now, just kind of... I've got a Substack, uh, Maggie Sirota at Substack.com called Professor Garbage. I've been posting more frequently than usual. So <laughs> there you go. Um, I am active. I'm active on Twitter until that thing breaks down and falls into the sea. So uh, at Maggie Sirota. And I'm also on Blue Sky. I am anywhere you want to find me at Maggie Sirota. I'm not hard to find. I'm so happy to see you on Blue Sky. I finally got my uh, keys to the kingdom a few days ago. It's like uh, Twitter without the Nazis. That should be their slogan. It's really nice to like see trans people and black people like happy. Like they're talking about mm-hmm. like how they're just having a good time and they're not being harassed and like mm-hmm. people saying racist things to them. It's just like it's like Valhalla too. Like some people that I haven't seen lately are mm-hmm. back. You know, on yeah. Blue Sky. Oh yeah, yeah, true. Some people that dropped out because like the, the or they got perma banned. Yeah, or it's just like, it's so toxic over there. It's like, oh, wow, it's nice to see Alex Winter again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like, hey, there's Ed Solomon. I haven't yeah. seen him lately. I mean, Twitter, I mean, I hate saying this, but like Twitter really helped me in a lot of ways and gave me a lot of opportunities that I wouldn't have had otherwise as a writer. Mm-hmm. And just like, it's kind of like with publications I work for. It's just like some bored billionaire has to wreck something I love. And it's yeah. like, like my livelihood's kind of tied to it in ways. And it's just like, oh. The way that I described it is you have a really great neighbor and then the neighbor moves out and then this biker gang moves in. Yeah. That's how it feels. Like. It's like, hey, I like the old neighbors. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, nothing gold can stay, Jesse. <laughs> exactly. Well, Maggie, will you please come back on the show uh, sometime soon? I know you, I've penciled you in to someday be my guest to talk about to live and die in LA. So that door is I, for you. All right. I will be walking through that door. <laughs> <laughs> Maggie Sirota, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. You know I love to talk into a mic, Jesse. <laughs> Before we go, I just want to plug our Patreon. Patrons get access to bonus episodes every month. To support the show directly and to get access to all these shows, please go to patreon.com slash junkfilter. Please follow us on Twitter at junkfilterpod. The original music for this program was provided by Marker Starling. My name is Jesse Hawkin. We'll have another episode in the next few days. Thank you so much for listening. Mm-hmm.